through surfing, I've learned a principle in life about expectations. It's that your expectations can determine your experience um, that you have. And so the way I've learned this in surfing is, I'll give you the context if you don't already know. If you, if you surf in Wilmington, you know. Um, we get waves here when the wind blows really hard for a couple days, and they finally build up. And then there's a small, small window. It's anywhere from two to six hours where the wind will go offshore and everything is perfect, but the tide has to be right. And so to, to get to this moment and, to, and be able to enjoy this, this moment of time, you have to cancel your life. You have to abandon your work and lie to get out of work. You have to get out of uh, commitments with your spouse or the person you're dating that you've already planned for that moment because you're a surfer and you want to be there for that good moment. But it's so unpredictable because you can have all this hope that it's going to be good and get there and it's too crowded or get there and the wind didn't cooperate or get there. It's smaller than you expected and it can totally ruin your experience or all the conditions can be perfect and then you just don't surf well. And so all these factors go into your experience of whether it's a good day surfing or bad. Your expectations determine your experience. It's what I've done is I go to surfing with low, low expectations. My expectation now is if I go, if I get to go, one, that's good. If I get five waves, I'm going to call it a good day. It's five good waves is all I'm going for. And then if I get those, I keep getting more, but I'm satisfied. And so what happened is that's totally changed my whole experience. I'll go and I'll be having a blast. And because I'm expecting it to be terrible, when it's good, I just can't take it. And I'm like just smiling and loving it, trying to make eye contact with other people. And what I found is not everybody's having a good time. I'm like, hey, what's up? Aren't you having a great time out here? No, it stinks. And then they give 50 reasons why it stinks. And then I'll keep looking around going, what is wrong with these people? It's because they have not adjusted their expectations for Wilmington, North Carolina. And so... This principle, the same principle, that expectations determine your experience is true when it comes to God, how you see God, your faith in God, and your life circumstances. It's the same. Have you ever experienced a situation that caused you to doubt or question God's love for you or God's presence or God's help in your life because that situation did not turn out like you expected? Or God didn't respond like you thought he would. I mean, this could be marriage. It could be your marriage. It could be dating. It could be family. It could be your job. It could be a risk you took. It could be so many things. But have you ever had a situation that caused you to really doubt God's presence and his love and his goodness in your life because the situation did not turn out like you, like you thought? Today, we're looking at a story where John the Baptist did this. He was questioning the identity of Jesus. He was doubting whether Jesus truly was the Messiah. John had put all his faith in Jesus. And he was doubting Jesus towards the end of his life because Jesus was not behaving or doing what John expected him to do as the Messiah. And so he was having a, 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 a crisis of doubt. Let's look at the story. We'll be in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to the 12 disciples, he went to teach and preach in the towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about these things 
the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting? Another translation, a more literal one says, are you the coming one? He was quoting Isaiah chapter 35, verse four. Are you the coming one who would judge, who will judge sinners? So he, and Jesus knew he was quoting the scripture. He said, or should we keep looking for someone else? So we know that John was doubting because he says, are you really the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? He was doubting, he was questioning. And so why was John doubting? Because John was, was faithful. John was a prophet. John was, was, had done the hard work. He was disciplined. Why was he doubting? Two reasons. One is circumstances. Think about it. Put yourself in his shoes. He had just been arrested because he called out Herod uh, for unlawfully divorcing his wife. Herod was a Jewish ruler that was right under the authority of the, the Roman rulers in the region. The Romans gave some Jewish people some authority to rule their people and kind of cooperate politically. And so Herod was one of those people. And so Herod was a Jew and he understood the law, but he had unlawfully divorced his wife so he could marry someone else. And John publicly called him out. And so Herod put him in prison and he was most likely awaiting death. We know he was put to death. They chopped off his head. But he didn't know it. He just knew it was probably going to happen. So he was in prison. The conditions were not good. And he's awaiting possible death. So his circumstances were causing him to doubt. He wanted to make sure that, that he had put his faith in the right Messiah. Because he had risked his life for the truth. And he wanted to make sure Jesus really was the Messiah. Are you the Messiah, the coming one to, that's going to judge sinners, or should we look for somebody else? Can you relate? Because isn't it easy to doubt and question God's goodness when our circumstances don't line up, when, when life is difficult? It's in those moments that we question, is this really worth it when life gets hard? When life is good, it's easy to praise God. It's easy to give him glory and thanks for all the good things that he's given us. But when life gets difficult, that is the true test. And so I think we can understand why John was doubting. So then, then the second reason he was doubting is right there in the text. It's in Isaiah 35, verse 4. See, John was holy. He was a prophet. A prophet had to be set apart. He had to live with extreme dis discipline. And he had to make hard choices and because he, he, he had to call people out and it was just a tough job. And so he was expecting, based on the scripture of the coming one to be a judge, he was expecting Jesus the Messiah or the Messiah to be a, a judge that would come and destroy sinners. But what he saw was Jesus the Messiah, who claimed to be the Messiah, befriending sinners, eating and drinking with them, John was refraining from that. He was separate. He was out in the wilderness preaching such an obscure message about the kingdom of God that people were coming to him. He was a wild man. He looked crazy. But Jesus was doing the exact opposite. He was going into the towns and hanging out with the, 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 the sinners. He was almost defiling himself by hanging out with them. It was unlawful. So he wasn't doing what John expected him to do. He wasn't behaving the way John expected 
the Messiah to behave. Can you relate to this? Because it's easy to doubt not only when you're in a tough situation, but when God doesn't respond to your prayers the way you expect him to, the way you hoped he would, based on what you know about God or you think you know about God. Those are the moments that it's doubly hard, especially if you believe God is able to do something for you, but he doesn't. That's when it's really difficult. When God has the power of heaven and earth and he doesn't answer your prayer, it's so tempting to think he does not care. That's what's going on here. And so Jesus responds to John with such compassion. He doesn't berate him or rebuke him for questioning. He answers him in compassion. He starts with John's question. He starts with the scripture that John was thinking about from the Old Testament. In his response, he says this. He tells John's disciples, go back and tell him what you have heard and seen, what you've heard and what you've seen in me. And he quotes Isaiah 35, which is the same scripture that John quoted. But he quotes verses 5 and 6. He said, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the good news, the gospel, that the kingdom of God is here and available to all, even the poor who are usually excluded, is being preached. And then he gives them a, a really just a huge grace by saying, and tell him, blessed are those who do not fall away because of me. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. He's encouraging him to persevere and say, I am the one you're looking for. You don't have it wrong. But the question is this, is why did Jesus quote Isaiah 35? I think it's out of compassion, first of all, because John Quoted Isaiah 35, verse 4, which says, Say to those who are fearful in heart or anxious of heart. John was anxious, right? He's in prison questioning. He's anxious about what's about to happen. Say to those who are fearful in heart, be strong and do not fear. God is coming to destroy your enemies. God is a judge coming to destroy your enemies. And for the Jewish people, their enemies were the Roman authorities that were just suppressing them. This was the Jews' land given to them by God. And the Romans were in power. And so they were waiting for a Messiah to come and to take out the Romans, to be a judge and to destroy their enemies. That's who John was looking for. And that's scriptural. That, that's in Jeremiah. It's in so many different prophets of Old Testament foreshadowing and foretelling of a time that Jesus the Messiah would come and destroy their enemies. But Jesus, when he quotes the next verses, it's like he's saying, hey, you got it right, but you don't have the whole story about the Messiah. Keep reading. Because then to get the whole, whole picture of the Messiah if you keep reading in verse 4, the verse John quoted, the very next line is, he will save you. Yes, he's coming to judge, but he will save you. Jesus, the Messiah, came to save. And then he goes on with demonstrations of that. The blind will see, the lame will walk, leprosy will be cured, deaf will hear, the dead are raised to life, the good news is preached. All these things were happening, what you see and what you hear. Jesus had been doing these miracles 
all around the community and the, the word was spreading. He's saying, look, keep reading the scripture to get the whole picture. He's going to judge, but not yet. First, he's going to save. So he's trying to expand his expectation, expand his understanding of the Messiah because John had fixated, like many prophets, on the judgment of God. And Jesus was saying, no, 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 I'm not, not going to judge. I'm going to destroy your enemies, but not yet. First, I'm going to offer salvation to everyone. And I love how he has the wisdom to use the scripture that John was thinking about to answer his question. Keep reading. Keep reading. This is huge. I'll be honest, I looked at the scripture, I was like, how the heck am I going to make an application out of this text? But it's amazing. This is such a nugget, this idea on expectations. John was expecting a judge to destroy his enemies, but the scriptures pointed to a savior and a judge. Our expectations determine our experience. John missed it because of his expectations. So here's what we have to do. There's a principle here. Are your expectations about God and faith and life based on the on the way about God based on the way he reveals himself in scripture? Are your expectations about what should happen in this life, about how God should treat you, how God should interact, how God should lead you based on how God reveals himself to you in the scriptures? Or is it based on just a part of the scriptures? Or is it based on something you heard that is not in the scriptures? Or is it based on just your own idea about what you think is right and how you think the world should run? Because we project those kinds of things on God all the time. We think of, well, if God was loving, he should do this. But here's the missing factor. We don't have an eternal perspective that is outside of time that sees the creation from beginning to end. We're just missing a little bit of perspective. Are your expectations about God and life based on what God reveals about himself in Scripture. That's the principle that we need to take away from this moment in John's questioning and doubting because John had it partly right, but he wasn't looking at it from the whole text and really all the prophets. So then, and John was, or Jesus was for John because I think that's why he was gracious to him. He was telling his disciples, go back and just affirm him. Tell them it's going to be good. Keep, you know, blessed are those who don't lose heart. He was just giving them some encouragement to hold on. And he knew John would lose his head. Isn't that crazy? He knew John would lose his head. He didn't save John, but he encouraged him to stay strong to the end. And then I love this because I even feel like this is for John's disciples to send this message back to Jesus. It says in the next verse, Jesus turns from his disciples it says, when the disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. So now he's, he's turned away from these disciples. They're leaving to go talk to John, but they can probably overhear what's going on. He turns to the crowd that is full of Jews, God's chosen people, and Gentiles. And he starts, he's judging them, basically. He says, tell John I'm here to save and judge, but he's about to put a judgment on these guys. And so he says, he starts talking about how great John is. And here's what he says. He says, what kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? 
Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Was he a weak person that was swayed by opinions? Was he a weak person that was swayed by his circumstances? Did he change his message because the pressures of, of all the people around him were against him? No, he didn't. He wasn't a weak reed. What kind of person did you go into the wilderness to see? Were you expecting a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? And he says, yes. He is more than a prophet. Why? Because John is the man that the scriptures refer to when they say, look, I am sending a messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way before you. It's in Malachi 3.1. John is the forerunner for the Messiah. John was greater than a regular prophet because a regular prophet was a person who received messages from God and then simply gave them to the people. John was greater because he was fulfilling the prophets, and he was a prophet's prophet. The, the prophets spoke about him. So he's building John up here. And I, I believe that his disciples saw that and took that message back to John for some encouragement. And then in verse 11, he's still talking to the crowds and he's, he's setting the judgment up on a T here. First, he talks about how great John is. Then he says, I tell you the truth, all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the person in the, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And so that's a confusing statement. John is great, but every person who enters the kingdom of heaven, even the least of these is greater than him. All the commentators and the people who study this for a living and devote their lives to this agree that what he's saying here is John represents the old way, the old covenant, where you had to be righteous to be able to enter the presence of God by obedience. And now, so he was doing pretty well. He wasn't perfect, but he was obeying the law pretty well. He was resisting being like the world. He looked pretty good as far as that can, you know, as good that can do you. He's great considering the old way. But in the new covenant that Jesus was bringing in with the gospel, everyone who enters the, the, gospel, enters the kingdom by grace is greater than John's old way of life. Do you see that? He's saying it's an invitation looking towards that moment in the future, that to be in the kingdom of God is an absolute gift of grace. It's an absolute gift of grace. You contribute nothing to that salvation to enter in. That's what he's saying there. So then he continues on. He says, from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. What's he talking about there? If you were there at that time, you would have seen John's preaching and Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, they both preached the kingdom of God is here. It's not fully here, but it's starting to be here. Things were happening. The religious order was getting turned upside down. That's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these people wanted to kill Jesus because they were messing with their power. We've got religion on a lock. We've been doing this for years and years and years. Don't mess it up. Who is this a prophet with no authority messing things up? The kingdom of God was forcefully advancing. And then you take the unseen, invisible world of demons and darkness. He was delivering captives from de demonic uh, possession. He was raising the dead. He was healing people with infirmities. He was disrupting the, the unseen world. 
the principalities. The kingdom of God was forcefully advancing in the world. And then I love this statement, and violent people are attacking it. Why did John get put in prison? Because he represented the kingdom of God that was forcefully advancing. And so they threw him in, in prison. Why did they kill Jesus? Because he was the kingdom of God, pushing it forward. That's what that means there. And so they're attacking it. For Before John and all the, came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to this present time. And if you are willing to accept what I say, he is the Elijah, not Elijah, but the one like Elijah in the, the spirit of the prophet that would come. Anyone who has ears should listen and understand. So he's building up John as this great prophet that you should listen to that, that he has been preaching about, but he's talking to the Jews. They should have understood these things. They should have known their scriptures. They should have recognized John as the forerunner of the Messiah, and they should have definitely recognized the Messiah. Now he goes into that. So then he goes on to this. He says, what can I compare this generation to? It is like children playing a game in a public square. Spoiled little children, they complained to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. You didn't respond the way we expected you to. These spoiled children, that's what the, the, the Jews are acting like. The prophet John didn't do what we wanted him to do. He's not the prophet they were talking about. The Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. He's not acting like he's supposed to. And Jesus goes on and says that. He says, for John didn't spend time eating and drinking. He refrained. He was out in the wilderness being holy. But you said he was possessed by a demon. The Messiah, the Son of Man, me, Jesus, on the other hand, feasted and drank with sinners. And you said he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. And then I love this line, but wisdom is shown to be right, right by its results. So we take that whole section there. He's, he set up the judgment. He gave John encouragement. I'm the one you're looking for. Read the whole scripture. But then he turns to the, to the Jews and he says, you're missing it. You don't have ears to hear. You don't have eyes to see. It's plain before you from all the prophets and the scriptures that John would come to pave the way for the Messiah and the Messiah would do these things. It's all plain before your eyes. You you're the people of God and you did not pay attention to the gift of the scriptures or the people who preach to you, you miss the mark. You complain like spoiled little children and said, no, they don't do this, they don't do that. You're like little kids that complain that people don't respond the way you want them to respond. I mean, he's laying it on them. They would have totally understood what he was talking about. And this is simply judgment one. Next week we'll go into judgment two, where he gets real specific. But this is the judgment. God sent John and Jesus as a gift to their people and to the whole world. But you don't believe. Instead, you simply complain about your expectations not being met. John's expectations was that Jesus would be only a judge. The Jews as a whole weren't even paying attention because they didn't recognize John or Jesus. They were just enjoying their power in their, in their old ways of doing life. The Jews have been given the whole law and the prophets, the whole revelation of God, but they didn't recognize. I think there's a, there's a, a principle here for us. Like I was thinking about this 
And I don't necessarily have an answer, but what would Jesus say to our generation, to this generation? What would he say? It's easy to talk about those people and all the people who don't believe, but he would say something to them. But I'm talking about, let's start with the church first. What would Jesus say to our generation of believers, to us, those who profess faith and are trying to follow Jesus? What would his judgment be on us? Because we are in a better position than the Jews. We have the whole testimony of God. We have so many translations of this scripture. At our fingertips, if you don't want a real book, you can have it on your phone. And if you're so lazy that you don't even want to read it, you can actually have someone read it to you who is a professional reader. What do we recognize? Are we responsible for what we've been given? I wonder what gener- Jesus' judgment will be on our generation because it's easy. It's, it's, it really is tempting to look and go, yeah, like stick it to them because you're on the good, you, you always assume we're on the good guy side. We're on Jesus' side. And then you cut somebody's ear off. He's like, hey, 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 hey. That's a reference to the Bible. Um, Jesus was, or John, or Peter, I don't even know the Bible. Peter was trying to uh, forcefully advance the kingdom of God by chopping people who disagree with Jesus' ears off. And Jesus was like, Peter, calm down. All right, anyways, so let's have some application here. The first thing I think that there's two things I want to leave here with is God was super compassionate. He was super compassionate with, with John's struggle and doubt and his questions. And I honestly think it was because John was genuinely questioning. Like he was genuinely trying to understand. He wasn't just being a provoker and asking questions just to kind of get you. But he was genuinely seeking to understand, is Jesus the Messiah that Scripture talked about? Because I want to make sure that I've got my confidence on the right person. And so... I think for us, you know, that, that gives us confidence that we can doubt and question and wrestle with God when it's genuine. When life gets hard, God is okay with our struggle. And I think he invites us to struggle. The Psalms are full of struggle, verbalized struggle. And the best thing we can do is to be honest with God and to vocalize our questions and our doubts because God is the one who is able to answer them. And I would encourage you when you're doing that, not only to be honest with God and to seek his word and look in his word for answers, but to ask your community for help, to come around you and to help you process your doubts and your questions. You know, because the worst thing you can do, I believe, is get by yourself and get holed up and just be, be stuck in your own thoughts. And just kind of recycling the same thought over and over. Because to me, that's the devil's playground, is your, your thought processes. Where he can just implant doubts and more confusion into your mind. Ask for help. And go to God and his word and through prayer and be honest about your doubts. Because he is compassionate. We see that in the scripture. The second thing is more of a, a responsibility. Because I think we do have a responsibility to align our expectations about God and life with Scripture. Because what happens is when our, when our, when our expectations about how, who God is and what He should do for us, when we get in the hard place, the temptation 
is to say, well, God, you didn't do what I expected you to do. Therefore, I'm going to have a bad attitude and not trust you anymore. Or I'm going to be mad at you because you didn't do what I expected you to do. And that can be okay for a time. But you have to step back and go, are my expectations aligned with the character of God based on how he reveals himself? Because sometimes we even, we even act surprised when we go through a test and a trial and we get mad. For God, why are you allowing this to happen? And if you look at Scripture, Jesus was clear. He promises you will have trouble in this world. But he also promises to be with you in that trouble. And so we have to get our expectations in check. And I'll tell you this, the best time to do that is when you're not in a test, when you're not going through the fire. When things are good is to check your perspective. And what I mean by that is that's a great time to be studying the Word, to be reading the Word and renewing your mind so that your mind and your view and your image of God is being shaped based on the reality of how God reveals Himself in Scripture. It's best to do that when you're not in the fire. It's not too late when you're in the fire, but I'm just telling you, when your emotions aren't all jacked up because you're going through something hard, is the best time to be studying and growing in your understanding of who God is and how he has responded to his people over the years so that you can have great confidence and healthy expectation when you enter into the trial. Are your expectations about God based on, rea- on the reality of how he reveals himself? Or are they based on something other than that? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you give us these stories and these testimonies about the people of God who have gone before us. God, John, in my mind, is one of those spiritual giants like Paul and these other guys. But they had flaws. And it's encouraging to know that because we're aware of our flaws. It's encouraging to know that we can bring our honest questions and our anger and our frustration to you. We can be authentic before you. And you come and you meet us and you help us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.